Hey mamas, welcome back to the So You Had a Baby podcast. I'm your host, Krista, and this is episode 50. First of all, can you believe I am 50 episodes in and have been doing this podcast for almost two and a half years? Honestly, I am so grateful for the opportunity to talk to so many amazing women who inspire me and help me to grow. And I am so grateful for all of you, my amazing listeners who are along for the ride and support me and take the time to listen. Doing this podcast brings me so much joy, and I truly hope you are as empowered in your motherhood journey as I have been. Okay, with that being said, this week's guest is a wonderful woman and friend who I have been so excited to have on. This week, I am joined by Tracy Beeble. Tracy is a licensed clinical social worker with a private practice in Portland, Oregon. For the past 20-something years, she has been helping individuals, couples, and families find more joy and connection in their lives they are living. She lives with her partner and their combined four kids, ages 6, 12, 15, and 18, two dogs, four chickens, and two rabbits. Prior to COVID, she often left the house to lift heavy things at the gym, perform improv comedy on various stages about town, go on long, unmasked walks with friends, and simply be alone. She is funny, real, and a wealth of knowledge. Her story had me in tears of both laughter and sadness. And it's not a story that you hear as often as she shared both her biological and adoptive postpartum stories. I enjoyed talking with her so much, and I know you will as well. So enough of me, let's get into it. I'm your host, Krista, and this is the So You Had a Baby podcast. Postpartum can look different for everyone, but the one consistent thing I've found is that there is not enough positive conversations happening to empower women in this beautiful journey we call motherhood. Join me and my incredible guests as we share empowering stories and topics to inspire women to grow and love themselves more throughout their postpartum journey. Together, we will work to change the stigma around postpartum. Hey mamas, before I jump into the episode, I wanted to take a moment to let you know that I have a website at www.soyouhadababypod.com. And if you haven't yet, go take a minute to check it out. I have a blog highlighting each of my incredible guests and their businesses and a resources page that has links to some of my favorite products, as well as links to favorite products shared by guests in various episodes. I'm constantly updating the page, so be sure to check in often. As always, sending you all love and empowerment in this wonderful journey we call motherhood. Tracy, I am so excited to have you on. This has been a long time coming getting you on here. And I'm really excited for you to share your story and share all the amazing work that you do. So to start off, I'm going to have you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. So your name, your profession, who you're a mom to, and what led you to an interest in working in your field. 
Yeah, first, um, it has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to be on. So thank you. Me too. For me. <laughs> um, so yeah, my name is Tracy Beeble. I'm a clinical social worker with a private practice in Portland, Oregon. Um, you can find me at tracybeeble.com. It's my website. Uh, I am a mom to, I have an 18-year-old son who's um, a biological kiddo. And then I have a 15-year-old daughter who is an adopted kiddo. And then I have two stepdaughters. One is 12 and one is six. So I've got a house full. And then there's a couple dogs and a few chickens and bunnies. To complete and, the picture, of course. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I don't on any kind of creatures. Um, reptiles I'm not down with, but, but everything else we've, we've pretty much got it covered. Um, and then what was the other part of the question? Uh, what... So what led you to an interest in working in your field? Oh, right. So I had a, um, I had a hard mom and I'm an only child. And as a kid, I always wanted to understand families better. And I had this drive as a little kid to want kids to have a voice and to have parents understand kids better. And mm -hmm. so as that developed, when I was little, I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer and do kids rights. And then as I got older, I realized that's not what I wanted to do. And there were other ways to do that. And so I ended up um, majoring in undergrad in child and family development. And I took it because the class was at noon and I heard it was easy. And I fell in love with it. It was fascinating. Um, people's stories are fascinating. The way people think and interact with each other and have relationships um, are fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I, I am endlessly curious about people and families and relationships. And so then when I decided to go to graduate school, um, I, social work uh, caught me because it's all about people's stories. Yeah. And understanding people's stories. And you know, the biggest part of my job is that I get to help people understand their own stories yeah, and, and make sense of them and find ways to create a life that feels satisfying for them. And that is um, beyond an honor to get to do that. So that sounds so corny, but it's, it's really <laughs> true. I, I really adore what I do because um, to have someone come and share their story with you is so brave and yeah so vulnerable and to have someone willing to do that and to work on those things and get to be a little part of that is um, just endlessly fulfilling for me. Absolutely. And it's so, I mean, you can see your passion for what you do just in the way you talk about it. For those listening, you can't see her, but you will be able to see her. <laughs> and really, you can just hear it in your voice. And I think I'm always amazed when somebody's personal struggle I mean, hence the whole reason we have this, our, this podcast exists is like somebody's personal struggle or personal situation inspires them to want to make something better. And that is just what a beautiful reason to go into something. To, and, and it allows this passion to stir within you that you realize that your, your mission behind what you do is bigger than just you. And it, I think when you have that and you show up to your career with that or life with that, even it, it, it comes through in everything you do. And like I said, just listening to you talk about why you're doing what you're doing is just, I mean, you can see that. Oh, so thank you. I, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty fantastic to have a job that I, you know, I'm not saying I want to go to work every day, but once I get there, I'm like, oh, right. I really like this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> 
So you're human is what you're saying. (laughs) So human, so wildly human. Oh, that's good to know. I think anybody listening that is like, oh, that's good to hear my therapist is human. Oh yeah, I love what I do and I don't want to go out and work lots of days, especially this past year. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So your family and your motherhood journey I'm really excited before we jump into all the amazing work you do. And I want to jump into your story because listening to your family and your household, I'm excited to jump into your postpartum story. So before we go into the full story, if you could describe your postpartum experience in one word, what would it be and why? And you have four kids with different backgrounds. So you're welcome to choose as many words as you'd like for these. (laughs) You know, I, honestly, for every one of them, for every kid who's come into my life, the word is humbling. H- however they came in and and my own experience with it, humbling for every one of them. All four of those kids are different. They all need different things from me. They need me to show up differently. And the biggest thing is that what they need from me is for me to be able to show up for them um, while putting myself to the side for a minute. And yeah. each one of them needs me to show up that way for them in a different way. And that is endlessly humbling because sometimes I'm able to do that really well. And other times I'm not. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've been parenting now for 18 years and, you know, in this field for, oh gosh, a lot more than that. And um, I'm still learning every single day and every moment. And they teach me stuff all the time. I am beyond a more patient, kind thoughtful and humble person for having been a mom. Yeah, absolutely. I can 100% agree. I can only imagine how your motherhood journey has really changed the way your work looks too. Oh, I I mean, the level of empathy and understanding I have for parents, Mm -hmm. even even when I haven't been in the same (laughs) shoes as a parent, just, you know, having been at Fred Meyer with the kid who's freaking out and, you know, and you're looking around and you're like, is everyone seeing this? And you're like, I got to just focus on the kid in front of me. Or yeah. you're so tired that you just don't think you can do another thing. And yet you have to, mm-hmm. um, or just, um, you know, struggling with your partner, right? Like I was married and I got divorced and I'm in a new, re- you know, not a new relationship anymore, but a different relationship <laughs> like families, right? Like, yeah. All- those experiences and being a parent throughout them. Um, yeah, I just have so much compassion and empathy and um, a desire to help parents um, just acknowledge their own struggles while still walking through this journey of parenthood because it doesn't end. Yeah. And you don't get to put it down. No, you don't get to put it down ever. Nope. (laughs) No, not even, you know, not even on, well, I say trips with kids are trips, not vacations, but even when you're gone, right? <laughs> not a vacation. So, um, so yeah, it absolutely informs my work and um, yeah. even more passionate about it. Absolutely. I bet. I bet. So I'm going to have you just jump into your postpartum story and you're welcome to share each one of your postpartum stories, because yeah. I feel like every, every child that you've brought in to your family has a different story. That's your, I feel like different curveballs for sure. sure. Yeah. You know, I'll, um, I'll start with the first one. So um, (laughs) I was pregnant with him. So (laughs) the healthy 30 year old, um, he's now 18. He just turned 18, which is wild. He's a lot taller than I am now. 
<laughs> you know, little belly anymore. Um, but I had a perfectly healthy pregnancy, regular healthy person. And then I um, had a 48 hour labor that didn't go, mm. nothing went as planned. Um, he was fine through the whole thing, but I was struggling. And after he was delivered, he was delivered vaginally. And then they discovered that I had what was called placenta accreta, which is remarkably rare in a 30 year old healthy person in a first um, pregnancy. And mm. it's where the uterus, um, the placenta is supposed to come off the uterus like Velcro and instead it gets embedded in the uterus. So I had two blood vessels oh. that were the size of like two fingers each um, embedded in the uterus. And so they had to do a DNC and take that out. And then I bled out. So I hemorrhaged to the point that, um, well, I, I was, I was dying. Mm -hmm. I had to have, um, blood tran transfusions, um, at Prov Portland. I was the first person to use their blood team. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Little fun tidbit. And I was in, I ended up in ICU for a few days and they had to take my uterus out because they, um, they couldn't save it. So I still have ovaries, but no uterus. Um, and so, and then the recovery from that was awful. My, um, my son was fine. He was perfectly healthy. Um, but then I was trying to make blood and milk at the same time. And I was trying to recover. I had, I think it was 30 something stitches um, that oh went gosh. up and down my abdomen. Um, and uh, yeah, I had some kidney damage from the blood loss. Like it was, it was bad. They were really worried about me. Yeah. Um, it was about as bad as it gets before you die. And so the next year and a half was a pretty hard recovery. And I had a newborn, right? Yeah. I had a little guy and talk about humbling. My, um, my gynecologist OBGYN was so wonderful. He said, you know, for most people, pregnancy is, is a pretty, pretty decent sized car crash, right? Mm -hmm. And yours was like a 50 car pileup. Oh my gosh. He's like, I mean, how validating for you, yeah. because it's easy to like downsize your own issues when you're living in them. Right. But I, my doctor is amazing. I still, I still see him and him, right. Lots of people, yeah. know, a male gynecologist or obstetrician. And he, he was just fabulous. But so, so that, and that took a toll on my marriage. It took a toll, which was already kind of struggling and not great, but that was hard. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was fertility right? Because I didn't want just one kiddo. I was yeah. an only child and I didn't want an only child. And, uh, you know, now what do you do? Right. Yeah. So my experience with that first one, um, he was lovely and I fell head over heels in love with him. And also he didn't sleep and it was really hard. And I had had so many antibiotics put in my body that then mm -hmm. he had, we both had, you know, thrush and he had intestinal issues because of all the antibiotics in his little belly. And so yeah. he was sleeping well. And then I wasn't really making enough milk, but no one would really talk to me about that. So the lactation was really challenging until I found Doris at St. Vincent's. I don't know if she's still there, but man, she was a lifesaver. <laughs> um, and what, do, what do they say to you in that phase where you're like, you're trying to produce milk, but like you said, you're also, your body's trying to create blood, blood which I feel like, making one of those on their own is already taxing enough while you're already, all your organs are trying to go back and you're still kind of in this survival mode. I mean, 
it was awful. And, and they, they, I didn't get great advice. Drink a lot of water. No. Oh. You know, sleep when the baby sleeps. I'm like, I can't, I have 30, I have 30 staples in me, right? Like, yeah, I think they had taken the staples out at that point, but, um, but like, it's awful. I mean, like, it's really, really hard. Um, I didn't get great advice. And one of the things I would tell myself now, I think I was so determined that my body could do this. My body was made to do this. And then I felt such a betrayal. Mm -hmm. I felt like my body had betrayed me. Yeah. I wasn't able to do this, that something was wrong with me because I wasn't able to do that. But then I was so determined to breastfeed exclusively that I didn't give myself any room to say, maybe supplementing with formula would still have a healthy baby. And I might be a little bit less stressed and my body could heal better, but I didn't give myself permission to do that. Well, and shame on them for not saying that to you in that moment. Like, Hey, your body's going through something real hard. This is an option for you. It might be worth looking at to take a stress off of you so you can still show up. And the reality is I don't remember anyone saying that to me, but that doesn't mean they didn't. Yeah. It's possible. I couldn't hear them. Mm -hmm. Right. So looking back, I don't recall anyone saying that to me, but maybe they did. And I wasn't willing to hear it. I don't really know. My memories, they didn't, but really, did they really not? Yeah, exactly. You hope that you hope they would. I hope they would. Yeah. I hope they would, but I don't, I, I honestly, I don't recall them doing that. And I didn't, I, I didn't supplement. I pumped like a half an ounce at a time and I drank a bunch of water and I fed him constantly and he was hungry and I'd do that differently. Yeah. I would for sure do that differently. That said, he is a healthy guy. Um, he's over six feet tall. He's <laughs> great. He's graduating from high school this year. It's, um, you know, all those, all those things. Um, yeah. and I'm fine, right? I'm healthy. My body's fine. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I'm a healthy person. So coming out of that, but one of the things that came out of that was um, infertility. Yeah. Because I no longer had the baby house, right? The mm-hmm the uterus is gone. So, um, we were talking, uh, my partner, my husband at the time, and I were talking about how to have, I'm not trying to gloss over that postpartum issue. That was really big. Yeah. I wanted to jump to the adoption postpartum because I think it's yeah. less commonly talked about. Abs- I absolutely agree. In fact, I've never heard this story and I feel like, and, and, and I'm not going to keep talking here, but I feel like that unless you're going through that yourself, you don't. Yeah. It's not it, like it's, it's within, and you don't think on two sides, no one is going to offer up that story because offering up any postpartum story is hard, but then no one's asking the question either, unless you're going through it yourself and want to know. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I'm, yeah. So you're not so, glossing over anything. Carry on. <laughs> oh, yes. A super traumatic birth and an almost dying is a big deal. Yeah. And then you have infertility on top of it. Mm-hmm. And you want to bring another child into your family. And the, the how, the how do you do that, right? All the different ways that you have to go about that. And if you want to get pregnant, from, for a lot of people, you just go get pregnant and then you have a baby. For mm-hmm. a lot of people and for those who struggle with infertility 
um, and end up in whatever place they end up on how to bring a child into their world, it's hard. Yeah. And the route we decided on was adoption for doing that. Because for us, it would have either been surrogacy or adoption. There wasn't another um, choice for us because, yeah. of the, because of the lack of uterus issue. Um, yeah. And so uh, I had worked in adoption as a social worker and uh, I had decided that as we looked at things, I we decided that adopting from China was um, the option we wanted to choose. We want we already had a little boy and we wanted a girl, and mm -hmm. China had lots more you know girls to offer than boys. And at the time, their program was pretty predictable. Yeah. And most of the kids coming out of China were really healthy, and very few were prenatally exposed to drugs or alcohol because yeah. most of the pregnancies were wanted. And um, they were pretty well, pretty well um, cared for, yeah, um, prenatally. So that was those are some of the things that we wanted from that. Mm -hmm. um, but the process of that is really intrusive. I don't know how much people understand about the adoption process, but we had to fill out um, forms about our finances, our sex life, our private life, our families, our education pictures of our home. We had to write a story. We had to have references. Uh, we had to oh have multiple interviews, not to mention the paperwork that when you're doing it internationally, I was born in North Carolina and he was born at Walter Reed in Washington, DC. So we had to have paperwork from there. We were born, we got married in Georgia. So we had to get paperwork from there. Then we had to work with the people in Oregon because we were adopting from here. And then mm -hmm. we work with the federal government and the Chinese government. Oh my gosh. Where do you even, where do you even start with that? Gratefully at the time there's, well, there still is, there's a really wonderful Chinese adoption agency in Colorado called CCAI, Chinese mm -hmm. Adoption International. And now they do more than just China adoptions, Chinese adoptions, um, but they were wonderful and they help walk you through the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and then there's also taking out a home equity loan on your house to pay for it. Yeah. Right. Cause it's, yeah. more, you know, it's more than a nice car. Mm -hmm. and you have to figure out how to, how to fund that. And then it was a really long two years where at the beginning of the process, it was going to be about six to nine months. Wow. And you never know when it's going to happen. Like when you get pregnant and have a baby, you it's predictable. Yeah. Otherwise, it's kind of like having an incredibly long, you never know when it's going to end pregnancy. Yeah, that's what, what an emotional roller coaster that yeah. must have been to like waiting on bated breath for anything. Yeah. And in the meantime, I, I had, as I recall, it was five friends who got pregnant and had babies while mm. we were waiting. Oh, one of whom had thought when we first started that they were only gonna have one child, they didn't want a second one and decided to have a second one, got pregnant and had them. Oh God, that's so, so happy hard. for all my friends, right? Yeah. But at the same time, it's so painful. Yeah. And that's just the pregnancy of adoption. Yeah. And yeah. people don't talk enough about how hard that is. I know. I agree. And I, how hard that is and also how hard it is. And I feel like there's a lot of women who hear, who experience this, who want 
children, especially women who aren't able to have them, who want so badly to have a family or to grow their family and have to watch from the sideline and silently suffer as they're out loud celebrating for their family or friends, you know, to be in that position for two years where you have to sit here and celebrate all of your close friends waiting for something that you just hope happens. Yes. And there are no guarantees. Yeah. Right. And I will say at the same time, I have this little boy who's growing and and I get to be his mom. And there are plenty of parents out there waiting for that first kiddo through Mm -hmm. adoption. And they are not even getting to be a parent like they want to be and how painful that is. Um, And then you go to China and you go pick her up. Yeah. And she's adorable and she's eight and a half months old and she wants nothing to do with me. Because she's right in the middle of stranger anxiety. Yeah. Like developmentally, she's right at that place where she knows who her people are and you're not it. You're not it. And you can know that intellectually, right? Like I did adoption work. Yeah. Like I worked with adoptive families. I went in with so much, you know, academic knowledge of this, mm-hmm. experiencing it when you are tired in another country, surrounded by all kinds of unfamiliar things with your three-year-old um, yeah. is really hard. So we met her, they handed her over and she pushed away from me as hard as she possibly could to get as far away from my body as possible when I held her. Um, And then for several days, she would do that. And then she would get exhausted and hungry and hungry enough that she would take a bottle from me and then fall asleep and then wake up and look at me again and start all over again. Because she's so confused. Yeah. And so bad and just a she's still, she's 15 now and she is still that tenacious, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's still like you can see the thread, you know, coming through of that tenacious little girl who was like, oh, you are not my person. Yeah. I want my person. Where's my person? Yeah. Um, and then over I'm the like course- on the verge of sobbing right now, listening to this, like, I, I can only imagine what you were experiencing in that moment, like heartbreak for her and heartbreak for you and heartbreak for anyone who's standing around watching this play out and oh well what was wild was right because it's so bittersweet it's mixed with that like joy if we finally get to meet this little one we've been waiting for for so long and the sadness for her because she's grieving so much and she's lost so much and doesn't understand yeah and what we were able to do which lots of families aren't she was in foster care and really well cared for and we were standing in the hallway in China with seven other families from the U.S. that we traveled with um, waiting for their their daughters as well. And um, her name is Amelia. So her family, her foster family actually showed up with her and we were able to come up the elevator and come out and she is looking around happy as can be, super smiley. And Mm -hmm. her foster mother, foster father and foster um, adolescent foster brother had brought Mm -hmm. her. And oh, that's really special. 
they came out, they, you know, they called, you know, uh, you know, Amelia's family and that was us and we walk over and they hand her over to us and they are streaming tears oh. down their faces and they're having a bittersweet moment too, right? Yeah. They clearly, this is what they do and they knew this was happening, but you can see how much they love her and have cared for her. And she's reaching back at them and screaming for them while I'm taking her and she's screaming for them. Oh. <laughs> and three-year-old is saying, you know, that's my sister. And she's yeah. like, I don't know who you are. None yeah. of you, you know, none of you smell like my people. You don't look like my people. You don't sound like my people. You are not my people. Yeah. And she was so angry and so sad and, um, that lasted for probably three solid days. Wow. And she got a little more settled, um, but she was still not pleased. She was just like, I guess you're not going to hurt me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, as we cared for her and she was hungry enough and she was cautious. And then we were in China for three weeks doing all the processing and the paperwork and everything. Mm -hmm. And then we get back home and now there's the process of settling in as a family and I had been working um, three days, three days a week, four days a week, three days a week, I think, um, at the hospital doing hospital social work. And I took three months off to be home with her. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so you're home every day with her doing all the things, all the attachment activities and all the things you're supposed to do. And I yeah. remember taking her to Fred Meyer for the first time and putting her in the cart um, and, and walking around with her and looking at her and feeling like I had to explain to everyone that she was mine. Yeah. One, she doesn't look like me. Yeah. And two, she doesn't feel like mine yet. And she's still not responding to you probably like you're her mom. No. Like <sighs> still pretty mad about it. And she's still confused. And I remember during that three months, we went and um, my son at the time, who again was three, and then she's like nine-ish months now, and we go to visit their dad at work and um, meet up with him, and she has no, she doesn't recognize him at all, like doesn't recognize him. He could have been a complete stranger, and I yeah. think if anyone else had carted her off, she wouldn't have known us. Yeah. Like, you know, doesn't recognize us. Um, and then, you know, there's the part of being a white family with an Asian kiddo. Mm -hmm. So all those things that happen, I remember I was in Fred Meyer again one day and I'm in line with her and the older woman behind me taps me on the shoulder and says, um, the rice cookers are on sale in the back. I'll bet she just loves rice. Oh my gosh. Right? Like all those, little, you're like, oh lady, you were just trying to say, what a cute little baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so badly, you know, so I had the presence of mind to say, you know, we all do. Thank you. Yeah. Our family likes rice. <laughs> yeah. Right. What a. Right. So there's that <laughs> too of sorting out like this child doesn't look like you. And then I remember you know, I don't know how many other, um, you, the, the, the process of having a, um, a biological child and then having an adoptive child, what, what 
many people talk about, and I certainly noticed, was when I would br breathe in the top of my son's head, it smelled amazing. Yeah. It was like the most wonderful smell in the world. And I picked her up and I was repulsed by how she smelled. I, I can't, I can't even imagine going through that process and then having that experience and like the feelings that must have come up for you in that moment of like, I, I mean, I, I can only imagine like the, the frustration and the heartbreak and the shame of feeling that way. And then the like, like all, I mean. Oh, even today saying that out loud and being like, oh God, people are going to hear that is like, I have to tackle my own shame of that. Yeah. Right. Cause I'm like, yeah. ah, I don't want people to know that, but if I don't say that out loud, I'm sure other people have that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't make you a bad mom for having that experience because, no. because the reality is, is hormones and the, pheromo the pheromones and all of those things are real. And it, I feel like some women even experience that with their own kids Yes, that are biological, that yeah. like that piece of like, I know you're, I know I'm supposed to like you, but I don't, I don't yeah. know. Like I like my body wants to, and like my mind wants to, but something is not connecting here. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? Right. That's hard. And then you've got your own thing and you're like, I waited two years for this kid. And now I don't like how she smells. Like, yeah. what, what do I do with that? Right. Yeah. And, and this other family like gave up this child so I can have this child. How do I get to be this ungrateful that mm -hmm. I don't like how she smells? Like what is wrong with me? You yeah. know, reality is nothing, nothing's nothing. wrong. But those moments are so hard and you're, you're still such a young parent and you don't know that enough. And you also don't know, like me of now would look back at me of then and be like, you were going to fall so deeply in love with that little girl. She's amazing. Yeah. But I didn't yeah. know that then. And no one's saying that to you. No. How, how did you work through that? Because I feel like, I, I mean, myself, I'm dying to know, like, what what was it that allowed you to move through that that experience and that, that, that process? I read a lot. <laughs> I read a lot. I, I, you know, one of the ways I manage my anxiety is by information gathering. So mm -hmm. I'm one of those where I'm like, well, if that's happening, I better learn about that. So <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, information gatherer. And gratefully, I, I'm a social worker and I had worked in adoption. And mm -hmm. so I had resources at my fingertips and I read a lot of things and, you know, I, I normalized it for myself and yeah. I empathized with self and I just decided that I, that was going to be okay. And that if I just kept walking and I just kept showing up that I was going to fall in love with this kid and mm -hmm. she was going to accept me. And I just had to keep walking through it. And I had taught other families how to do this. Yeah. Right? Like, I had told other families things. I had just mm -hmm. never lived it. Yeah. And it's much easier to talk to talk than it is to walk the walk. But yes, I, I yes, it is. And then as that next, you know, the, the first three months went by fast, I tried to go back to work. I tried to put her in childcare two days a week at this lovely childcare we had, and she couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So there was one, um, you know, 
Saturday evening when my then her dad and I looked at each other and I said, I'm calling work and telling them I'm not coming back. And he was like, yeah. And so I called work on Monday morning and said, I'm not coming back. And they had watched me wait for two years for this kid and were totally understanding and said, yeah, yeah got it. Makes sense. And then the next day I started a private practice that I worked around my family. Wow. Oh my gosh. So, you know, I worked less, like it was much smaller and I worked it around. I worked evenings and weekends and um, started doing home adoption, home studies and just like piecemealed a career together. Yeah. Found that and did that, you know, as she um, got older and was able to go to preschool at, at three and then I could, I could work more, but she needed me to be home. And gratefully, we had the financial resources to allow me to do that. And yeah. not everybody does. And so I'm so grateful to have had that, um, you know, ability to do that, that her dad's job could support us. Um, yeah. I was able to, to do that. Um, you know, that's a luxury. Not everyone, not everyone has to be able to do that. And the reality was over that time and over that first year and year and a half, um, she smiled more and yeah. she got more comfortable and that giggle came out and she's funny. She's so funny. Um, <laughs> and she's determined. Uh, and we fell in love with each other. Yeah. And she and her brother are such a good team and she's so amazing, but, um, man, I had two really challenging postpartum experiences. Absolutely. More typical. Yeah. I, first of all, I want to like honor you for being able to, to be able to offer yourself like kindness and empathy and the ability to kind of keep going in that place that you were with Amelia, with your second daughter, with your second child, like, being able to stand in a hard space and be willing to be like, okay, this is where I'm at. And I'm going to keep marching through this because I know that on the other side, there's something good, even though it doesn't look like it right now. That's a really hard thing to do. And I feel like so many women fall into those, like that, those sticky steps in postpartum of, and you did it with your first as well, like in a very different way but you fall into these steps of this is hard and I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And this feels like, I don't know how to move past right now. Yeah. And, and being able to offer yourself the kindness and love and empathy to be able to keep stepping and know that it's going to get better. It takes a lot of work to do that. Every moment and every step you have to kind of be willing to be like, okay, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think some of, and, and I know not everyone can do this and I, I'm coming from a place of resources and education and, you know, so many things that make that easier, right? Yeah. Like I, I am so well aware of that, but I also know that resilience is believing that you can do hard things. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, I can. And also as a parent, I don't have the option of not. Yeah. Like there's a kid who needs me. So I have to get up, right? Like yeah. somebody needs to be fed. Somebody needs to be changed. Somebody needs something. And so I, I have to, um, mm -hmm. 
And I, I know for some women, even that isn't able to do it. And so yeah. there are times when you need more help than that. And that's where medication and therapy and talking to your doctor and doing all those things, right? If you can't do that, then the other one is asking for help, whatever yeah. help that is, right? And so I also- And not a- feeling ashamed about it. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah, right? Like, yeah. there's no medal. There's no medal for getting to the other side of that without asking for help. Yeah. That's not, you're already, there's superhero- stuff going on enough just by getting up every day and sustaining another human like that yeah um, Yeah, exactly I also had wonderful friends Mm. who uh you know showed up and um and and good support around me which goes a long way but also I just you know one of the ways that I cope is my anxiety drives me to just keep doing yeah you know, that's a double-edged sword. Like that's awful in some ways. And then in other sides, it's like, well, I'm just going to keep going. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have an option. And one of the things that for me, parenthood has been incredibly healing Mm -hmm. because my mom was so hard that one of the things I wanted so badly was to be a parent so that I could experience parenting in a way that I've, I've often thought like, what did I need? Like, how can I show up and be the parent I needed for these little people? Yeah. And that was incredibly healing for me to be able to show up in a way that no one was able to show up for me. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I can show up for someone else in a way I needed. So that drove me too, because I was so determined. I mean, that was one of the biggest reasons I wanted to be a parent was because I wanted to be able to show up and do that in a different way than it was done for me. Mm -hmm. So just sitting in that, I was like, well, that's not what I got into this for. Like I, I can't. Yeah. I think I, it's, I, I'm, a, it's easy. I feel like it's easy to, especially when you don't have a good example of what, what a strong parent looks like. It's easy to fall back into the patterns when life gets hard that you know, and that you, that you, that have been demonstrated for you. So for you to stand and, and recognize, like, I wanted to do this differently. And even though it's hard, I'm still going to do this differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's a hard thing to do because it's, they said it's, it's easier to fall back in to the example that, you know, personally, rather than do the work to do something new. For me, that was just not an option. Mm-hmm. It, w- it was just not an option. And that's not to say that that's right or wrong or better or worse than anyone else. It's just my experience and my mm-hmm. determination. Um, from the time I was a little kid, I was like, I'm not doing it that way. You know, yeah. a, a lot of my life was spent being like, I will do that the opposite way my parents did. Yeah. I got old enough to choose like, oh, I don't have to actually look at them for the opposite way. I can just choose my values and what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and I will say, I, I, I continue to, you know, I tell my kids, I've told them for years, I was like, oh, thank you for the opportunity to continue growing as a person. Um, getting to be your mom has helped me be, um, you know, a, a, a better and stronger and richer person than I ever could have been. Like, 
It's a mm -hmm. gift to me, right? Yeah. I chose this and I picked it because I wanted it. And I wanted it because I knew it would help me grow in ways that I wanted to grow. I yeah. want to have to show up for someone that way. I, um, I value that. Do I want to do it every day? No, no. Right. Some days <laughs> yeah. I'm like, everyone go away. I don't want to do that <laughs> right now. But you know, then 30 minutes later, I'm like, where's everybody? Like, <laughs> it's so just, true. Like, give me, give me like, my space, but don't go too far. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, um, it's, uh, it's humbling and, and, and joyful and the hardest thing I've ever done and the most satisfying. And what's really remarkable is watching um, particularly the 18 and 15 year olds, because I've parented them the whole time. And yeah. I've, um, the other ones I've known for five years or almost five years, but the, um, you know, the oldest ones I've known um, for all of his life and most of hers mm -hmm. and been their, their primary parent, but they're such lovely people. Yeah. Like, out it, of doesn't that feel so good for you? You're like, oh man, like you have done such a great job for yourself, but also like high five me for yeah, being able to show up and and create help foster like create this growth and this space for you to be this good human. It is. It's incredibly satisfying, and and one of the most satisfying things. What I want. One of the reasons I wanted to have more than one child is because I wanted to foster that relationship mm -hmm. and getting to watch the two of them and what a team they are and how they work things out when they have conflict. Right. I mean, I've been doing. I've been using like couples counseling techniques on them since they were really little. <laughs> I mean, it's really accurate. <laughs> it is, right? It's your first intimate relationship where you have to sort it out and understand the other person and see from their point of view. And when you're in a, when you're a kid, that's incredibly hard. And so to get to do that for them and be that conduit for them yeah. to sort out that relationship and see the way they actually have skills for doing that now is so um, well, it's, it's such a gift. Yeah. Like it's so satisfying to watch my daughter be so sad that my son is growing up and going to leave the house. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he's decided to take a gap year, especially with the, with the virus this year. So I, he's most likely he got into college, but he's probably not going to go next year. He's going to wait. So he's going to work for Can't a year. Blame them. No. <laughs> um, and so he's going to work for my partner and, his sister is so happy that he's not leaving yet. Oh, that's really sweet. You know, they are, um, they're such a team. So, you know, some of the things I think, uh, I think some of the, the questions you had, had posed to take a look at beforehand were kind of, you know, what would you say to your, your younger self or your, your, you know, prenatal self, prenatal self. And I often think for myself, like, what would my 75 year old self tell me now? And what would I tell yeah. my five-year-old self now? Like, what would we go back and say? And I think some of the things that I would say to my younger parent self are like, trust their path. Just give them mm -hmm. some guardrails and trust their path and just kind of just get a B average here. Like you're going to, it's all going to be fine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. To be perfect, get a B average and it's all going to sort out. And mm -hmm. it's not about the stuff or the things or how academically successful they are. It's about the relationship you have with them and what that's like over time and what kind of conversations you can have. And 
I'll say this past year, I have loved my teenagers. People talk about how hard teenagers are. I adore them. Yeah. They are irritating. Every single age is irritating. Oh yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and lovely. And I've gotten more time with my teenagers in this past year than most people get with their teenagers. Absolutely. And it's fabulous. Like we get to hang out. They're fun. They seek me out again, yeah. to hang out with. And um, we have that relationship where we can have real conversations about things and they share their lives with me. Not, not all their lives, because that would be weird. They should have <laughs> right? But we have real conversations about stuff. And um, I love that as they get older, I get to share more of me with them. Yeah. You know, you get to, you get to change that relationship from parent into friend. There's a, I feel like that doesn't, that, that full transition doesn't happen until you become an adult and you have this shared space, but like even the beginning stages of that are really, really fun. I love that you said that advice that you could give to yourself because that, the idea of the, you know, for, for even for a prenatal woman, I feel like listening to this for who's going into her first pregnancy or second or any of them that that remember reminder of the things are not the things that count like those material things that especially when you're pregnant with your first I feel like it's so easy to get wrapped into this oh I need this and I need this and I need this I mean I know I did it myself like oh I have to have this and I have to have this and now you know eventually when we want to have another kid I'm going to be like I, I don't really need that I yeah. don't really need I mean in fact I don't even need to do a bedroom because let's be real they don't sleep in the bedroom and like all, all of the things that you think you need to have because, you know, those external inputs tell you this is what it takes to be a parent and a good parent. It's not true. It's that it's showing up really is that's it. That's all they need. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think showing up and being able to, I think one of the things that I've learned the most, well, maybe as a person, but especially as a parent is the ability to show up for somebody else and be able to put your feelings in the back seat for a little while, mm -hmm. just show up for them because it's really not about you. No, especially so as a parent. Not you. <laughs> it's not about you. And so to be able to show up and have them tell you things, um, you know, awful things, terrible things um, about you, right? Like, <laughs> I remember my daughter was four and in our house, when you're having a hard time, you had go have a seat on the stairs to calm your body and then try again. And mm -hmm. she stormed over to the stairs and I'm never going to get up the stairs in my whole life. I'm going to be here for the whole universe, for my whole world. And you're never going to be my mom again, right? All those things. And then she calms down. And I go sit next to her. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And she was like, oh, I was just sitting here thinking about putting needles in your eyes and hitting you with a hammer. <laughs> right? You're all, oh, <laughs> like, okay, let's talk about that. <laughs> she needed in that moment was for me to look over at those big brown eyes and say oh well those are big feelings yeah without being like oh, I'm a bad parent something's wrong here something's wrong with you something's wrong with me and instead being able to look at this little person who just shared her biggest in innermost darkest feelings with me and she needed to look in the mirror of my face and see I'm okay yeah and I'm not too big for you. And I'm not too much for you. And none of my feelings are too much for you. Mm -hmm. And then I can look back at her and reflect back. You're loved even with your great big feelings. 
And then she oh. can relax into that. What a gift. What a gift. I mean, I'm so grateful that you shared that because I mean, I have a four-year-old and you're right. Some of the things you're saying, you're like, where did you hear that? First of all, like, what am I doing wrong? That would make that come out of your mouth. Right. And you instantly go to this place of I'm a bad parent because you're yeah. saying these things and I need to correct this right now because something's going to be wrong. And maybe you're going to turn into like a mass murderer and like, you know, all the wildest things that could possibly right. come. But, but it's true. Those thoughts that come out of it, it's just them trying to process something really big and these big angry feelings in this tiny little body. Mm-hmm. And they only have a limited number of words to use to express all of these huge emotions that we forget that kids feel. Yeah. They feel them all just like we do That's with right. way less vocabulary. That's right. And so, you know, for her, and, and I tell families I work with all the time, like, I just call that kid cursing, right? Yeah. That's all it is. It's just like, this is the biggest, most powerful way I know how to say how I'm feeling. Is that too much for you? Am I too much? Am I okay? And what we need to give back to them is, whew, yeah, you are. Yeah. It's normal to have those big feelings. And not take it personally. No. As a parent, because I feel like it's easy to do that. Like, oh, how dare you say that? I raised you. Like, I gave birth to you or whatever the story is. Like, you, you want to go into like, how dare you like protect yourself where you can't do that. No. And her next follow-up was when I was like, Oh, those are some big feelings. Wow. That's hard to have those feelings. She said, yeah, but I wouldn't ever do it. (laughs) And I said, well, who that probably feels good for you to know. Yeah. It does. It does. It's an, it's amazing when you give kids the space to talk, even, even little babies. And like you, you shared some of this in your story of your adoption process with Amelia is like that the fact that she was eight months old, I feel like as parents, we think our babies can't talk. And I, you, you, you see this a lot play out, I feel like, but when your babies can't talk, they don't feel. Mm-hmm. Or they do, but only in a really small range that you can understand because they're crying or yeah. they're laughing or they're throwing something or, you know, you only give them the amount that they have the ability to process that you understand. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is they have that full gamut of emotions and it takes work to, to understand that they're telling you something that's probably bigger than they can express right now. So if you can put down your own ego here mm-hmm. to listen, yes, even if there's no words, yes. they'll tell you everything. They will. They really will. Are you familiar with Rye, Respecting Infant Educators? I, so I've heard of Rye before, and I think it's worth sharing with a lot, I mean, with listeners, because I think it's a great, I, I don't even, I think I, I think we do that without realizing we do that, like that parenting style. Yeah. Or we've screwed it up in a lot of ways too, because, well, you know, <laughs> what kind of parents would we be if we didn't? Right. Totally. Well, it, it's one of my favorite approaches to, especially little people. So mm-hmm. it was designed, it was um, uh, developed by a woman named Magna Gerber, but the one of the best places I know right now to go get information about it is um, janetlansbury.com. She's really wonderful. And she kind of interprets Rye in a really wonderful way. So I would highly recommend going and checking out her website for little people. Um, 
But the whole idea of it, to give it in a nutshell, is that babies are full little humans and mm -hmm. they are resilient and really capable if we let them be. And what they need from us is for us to communicate. And, you know, we'll just come up and swoop up a little baby and go change their diaper when they're in the middle of something. Where what they need us to do is say, hi, oh, yeah. you're holding the block. I notice you need a diaper change. I'm going to pick up your body. Oh, you want to bring the block with you? Okay. It's called mm -hmm. narrating or sports casting. Um, yeah. What's going on. And one, it builds language. Two, it builds connection. Three, it tells them what's going on in their world. Yeah. It gives them words for things and it tells them what's happening and it communicates with them and it also respects them as little people. Yeah. Because what if someone just came and swooped you up and was like, well, we're going somewhere now. And you're like, what, what, where, where, where are we going? Yeah. Um, no one would do that. To no. A grown up. No. And it validates their, what potentially is going on in their head of like, this is probably really confusing for you, but I'm going to walk you through it because now that you know what's happening, you'll be less confused. And next time I go to do this, it will make more sense and yeah. it won't be a fight. Yes. every time. Yes. Because you're going to start catching on like, oh, this is the process that we're doing because this is what comes when this happens. And there's like, you know, the cause and effect idea of, yeah. of life. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that's why songs are so helpful for little kids. Well, for all of us, but especially for babies and little kids. Mm -hmm. um, because if you do songs that help them have a beginning, middle and an end of something, then they can anticipate what's coming. Yeah. And just like when you tell them what's happening. I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to carry you. Oh, here's the changing table. Do you feel it underneath you? Yeah. And then here we go. I'm going to take your pants off. Oh, it's chilly, isn't it? Yep. Okay. Now yeah. I'm going to take your diaper off. Oh, I'm wiping the poop off your bottom. Is that chilly? Oh, that's cold. Do you want to hold one of the wipes? You can hold one of the wipes, right? You're just like going through what's happening. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to hold your legs and pick your bottom up now. Oh, look at you. You're up in the air, right? Like, all of those things that a lot of us, a lot of people do instinctively anyway, but there yeah. are lots of people who just do that silently. Yeah. And it's interesting. I'm going to jump back and then we're going to come back to this yeah. a little bit. Um, just because, well, I don't know if I'm going to do that actually, because I really want to keep this conversation going. We can, we can come back to the other thing later, <laughs> but I think, I think that you know, our ability to walk our, our kids or to do things for our kids. It, you see that a lot more these days. And I feel like that's one of the questions I had for you is essentially now that with this pandemic, I feel like we're going to see that a lot more. And I, in our generation or my generation, I feel like we have this need or want to do everything for our children. And that, that helicopter parent of like, I'm not going to let you do this. I don't want you to be hurt. I'm going to make sure everything's okay in your life is already really present. I see it a lot. Just yeah. going to the park or going like, I don't want you to climb that. I don't want you to break your arm. And I don't want you to do this because you're going to get a splinter. And I don't want, you know, all these boundaries that we create. Yeah. But now we've gone through a pandemic. Yeah. And I think this conversation is really important for all parents because in a world right now, when everything feels so uncontrolled, 
and so scary as adults. And, you know, usually we're the ones who are like, at least I know that what to expect here and within bound, within reason. Now we have no rules and we're all making up these rules as we go. And it feels really confusing. So when we come to turn to our, our children, that idea of a helicopter parent who's just going to do everything and protect our children is even more so. Oh, And how how are you helping parents in this? So in addition to your, 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 you're a licensed clinical social worker, you focus on, you know, couples and families, but you also do parent coaching. How does that, how do you coach somebody? And like, how has that changed for you? Cause I feel like right now you've probably got parents running to you like, so my world's on fire. What do I do? And like, absolutely. And yeah, the reality is a lot of the things haven't changed. Some of them have for sure, right? But there's a really wonderful book called How to Raise an Adult that I recommend every (laughs) parent read. And I think every pregnant person should read um, or every pregnant couple should read because what it talks about is what we're really doing is raising adults from the get-go. We are raising people that are gonna go out into the world. And what we wanna do is incrementally give them tools for doing that. So that means if you can put your shoes on, you should be putting your shoes on. If yeah. you can climb that play structure, you should climb that play structure. Now, here's the thing at the park, and I know lots of parks aren't happening right now, but they're climbing at home, they're climbing stairs, they're doing all kinds of things, right? So yeah. um, we, we want to, we'll take the play structure or the tree example, right? Um, I one of the rules when my kids were little is if you can get yourself up there, you can climb it. If not, you're not ready to be up there yet. And if you can get yourself up there, you can get yourself down. Yeah. So if we let kids do their own risk-taking and we don't skip steps for them, they Mm -hmm. will slowly but surely gain tools, confidence, and ability. But if we pick them up and put them up on the thing that they're not ready to climb up onto, then we just let them skip a bunch of steps and now they don't know how to get up or get down. Yeah. So, you know, when they're like, I want to get up there, you're like, well, let's figure out how to help you climb up there. I can't do it. Well, then it must mean you're not ready to do that yet. Yeah. But I want to- Rather than putting putting them on the top of the display structure and be like, okay. (laughs) There you are. There you are. (laughs) Get me down. So now they need to be rescued. And they needed to be helped to get up there instead of allowing them to build their skill set for how they get up to the yeah. top of there. If you're not big enough to reach something, then you're not big enough to reach it. But yeah. I want to reach that. Well, honey, then you'll need to get taller or we'll have to talk about building skills for getting up there. Like that's just, that's not how that goes, right? And I think the same thing goes for at home. So. Um, if you can, there's this idea called scaffolding. Mm-hmm. And if you can picture a traffic light, red, red yellow, green, um, green are the things they've mastered already and can do by themselves. Yellow are the things they need help with and red are the things they can't do yet. We mm-hmm. want to regularly be moving things down that. And yeah. the scaffolding means we want them to be living in that, I call it the zone of struggle between yellow and green, mm-hmm. where we need to help them a little bit but they can mostly do it. And then they're mastering it and moving things down. So we want yeah. to regularly be scaffolding them to just the thing just out of reach, which means if they can cut their own sandwich, they should cut their own sandwich. 
yeah. if they can reach something, they should reach it. If they can pour something, they could pour it. If they can get themselves dressed, they should get themselves dressed. And parents are like, oh my God, that will take forever, right? <laughs> yeah. So we build skills for it. So things like bedtime and mealtime and brushing teeth time and getting ready for bedtime and all those things we do every day are the places mm -hmm. to practice these things. So you are welcome to have breakfast after you get your clothes on. I'm not getting my own clothes on. Well, then you'll be hungry. <laughs> Well, and, and so many parents in that moment be like, I can't do that. I mean, I got to send them to school with food. It's like, what? but they know, they understand. We, we do some of that with, I mean, obviously there's, there's, we slip up a lot. And I think sometimes I kind of laugh when you said earlier, the raising, raising adults is like, I feel like that's also like teaching parents how to parent. Like yes. we want to teach kids, but we have a lot to learn from our kids. But the reality is it's, training parents oh. how to parent and us yes. how to set boundaries even with our children of like you know yeah. like we again I have a four-year-old and this is a battle every morning like we got to get dressed you know you have to get dressed we have to get out the door I know you know how to do this because when you want to you can yep so you know and standing your ground a little bit even when it's uncomfortable mm -hmm. and even when you want to run out the door like you create these habits and they, they learn that, oh, I have the ability to do this. They do. And, you know, they don't have um, a sense of urgency and it's not mm -hmm. on their agenda. They could hang out all day at home in their pajamas with you and be perfectly happy. And one of the things in this pandemic has been that a lot of families can. Yeah. And so we just, and, and there's been so much struggle that we decide not to take on the struggle because goodness, they don't have to get dressed. So why take on that struggle when we're just struggling to do all these other things? And I, yeah. get, and I'm all for not taking on battles that you don't need to take on. And if people want to stay in their pajamas all day, I don't care. Yeah. You've got to have some areas during your day where you're setting limits and practicing limits because it's teaching them how to live in the world and how to take care of themselves, how to be responsible for things, how to, how to do those things, how to delay gratification, how to tolerate discomfort. Mm -hmm. And if we're not regularly learning those things, then we're not very resilient people. Also, I feel like on the parenting side, if you're not regular, regularly practicing doing those things, then when do you start? Yes. Because at a certain point, it's going to get to them being, you know, and this might sound extreme, but it's going to get to them being, you know, 10 years old and you're still doing all the things because you've always done that. Yes. And it starts being this problem of, I don't know how to stop because I've never done this. And my kid does, isn't going to do the things I need them to because they've never had to. And then that so you become this like crutch and it's like this double-edged sword that, you know, they can't because you didn't and you didn't because they couldn't. And then a lot of times that parent ends up feeling like a martyr and acting like a martyr. And then that's not a healthy relationship in the family. Yeah. And then, you know, that, that often falls on gender lines and that often falls on, um, you know, the mom doing mm -hmm. all the things and then feeling like the martyr. And then I have to do everything for everybody and not realizing that 10 years ago, she set it up that way. Yeah. 
she didn't mean to, but she did because she didn't like how her partner did it. So she interrupted and didn't let him do it the way he was going to do it because it wasn't done right. And mm -hmm. then she just wanted to do it quickly and get it done because the kid would just make a mess when they did it. And she just wanted yeah. to get it done. And now you're 10 years later and she's still doing it all. She's taught everyone that that's how it's supposed to go. And that was the last thing she meant to do. Yeah. And now she's a martyr in it and she doesn't know how to get out. Yeah. I just, I feel like the, it's like this slippery, slippery slope of, you know, you, it causes the frustration and you enable it and then you're frustrated and then you're resentful and then it causes struggles. You know, you're, you're frustrated with your children because they're not doing what they, you want, what they're supposed to do. And then you, there's struggles in your family. It's like these, all these little pieces in your marriage, you know, all these little pieces start coming down one at a time. And I feel like it's so important to hear and remember and practice that these habits that we start as parents, as new parents, as, you know, as a pregnant woman, who's figuring out what to do and how you want to walk into, or, or a dad or, you know, whatever the situation looks like. I think it's really empowering to know that you, you can start being the parent you want to be with practice from the beginning. Your kids will understand. And also you can change it at any time because you're the grown up and you make the rules. So yeah. if you are 10 years down the road and you're like, uh-oh, I wish I'd done this differently. You can start now. Mm -hmm. It's not too late. And a lot of times I'll have parents say, but I've been doing it this way forever. How am I going to change it now? I'm like, oh, I'll show you. Yeah. There's ways, there's, there's, there's methods ways. to this. There's absolutely ways to change this and make you feel better about your relationship with your kids, with your partner, with yourself to find yourself in the world. I think that's one of the things that I think that parents do a lot. And I think dads do it for sure, but moms do it a lot. And society tells us we're supposed to in a lot of ways mm -hmm. is that our whole identity is someone's mom. Yeah. Yes. And that if we're not doing all the things and being selfless in all the things that we're not being a good enough mom. And that is mm. so not true. It's not. And it creates so much loss of identity for women. I mean, myself, I experienced that. Like, okay, well now this is my new role. role. Now what do I do? Yeah. Like this is who I am, but this isn't who I am only. But, right. but now I am because that's why I feel like I'm supposed to be. Right. And I feel guilty if I'm being selfish. Right. You know, but it's, it's like this, you know, you get stuck in this spiral, but it's, it's true. Absolutely true. So, you know, that's the other thing that I would encourage young parents to do is I don't care if it means that you go out for just a 30 minute walk by yourself and your partner puts the kids to bed, mm -hmm. take your 30 minute walk, go meet a friend on Saturday morning and leave everyone at home and go take an hour with a friend. Like it doesn't have to mean that you have this great big hobby outside the home that takes hours and hours and hours. When your mm -hmm. kids are little, that's hard. Yeah. But when they're little, you can go read a book by yourself that you want to read. You can go take a shower and they'll live. You can go meet a friend. You can go to the gym. You can go for a walk. They can yeah. eat. Your partner can step up and, and do those things 
you just, it might not be done the way you want it to be done, but they're not you. And a lot of times they want to. Yes. They want to do yeah. it. They just don't feel empowered because, you know, I hate to put this a lot on, on the moms, but it, the reality is, is that we don't want to give up control. I know a lot of times it comes from, and this isn't a blanket statement, but a lot of times it's a com- it comes from a place of, especially, and I know this personally, especially when you choose to stay home. I stayed home for with my daughter for two and a half years. That was my job. Yeah. And so giving somebody else the power oh, yeah. was like, well, now I don't have value because you right. can do it, which means what am I for? Right. And that is such an unsettling feeling for so many women that it's like, okay, well, I don't want to give you that because that's my thing. You're right. going to work or you're doing your thing. And if I give you that, then it takes away from all the work that I'm doing. And now I don't feel validated in me staying home. Right. I think that absolutely. And I also think that there's a guilt of, I get to stay home. So I guess I should take care of all those things and not burden you with it. Absolutely. There's both and they're all mixed up together Mm -hmm. along with a whole other host of things that, you know, I think that in, um, you know, heterosexual relationships, we have these social norms that we don't even know we're swimming in that once we have kids, we, even if we didn't do it before we had kids, once we have them, we're like, oh, look, we're the beavers <laughs> or the cleavers or the whoever, right? The, the leave it to beaver people or the, whatever it is that, that we jump into those roles that we don't even know that live within us. And then all of a sudden yeah. we're taking them out and we're restless in them and uncomfortable in them, but we don't know how to get out of them. Yeah. And often I see it happen in same sex couples too, that, you know, they somehow find ways to each step into one of those roles. Yeah. It's wild how that happens. Society has scripted this for us. And, and unless we consciously take action to have our script in our household and our relationship be different, we just step right into those. Yeah. And I don't know that it benefits everyone. The other thing is that sometimes those roles make sense. Yeah. And we don't have to feel bad about being in them if they work for us. Yeah, it's 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 a, that's a really interesting turn on that too because I feel like especially right now in 2021, 2020 when it was 2020 like it, we're in this this space where, you know, women were empowering women and sometimes what I saw happening, I think I experienced this a lot personally was was Everyone was so quick to, and, and at the time, I know in 2016, I was staying home or two, through 2018, I stayed home and there was a lot of conversation, rightfully so there should be about women empowerment and how, you know, you know, women need to be in the workplace and we need to equal. But what that sometimes showed was, was a discrimination towards the woman who chose to stay home and to be that, the stay at home mom and to be the, you know, the woman who, who carried those traditional roles of like mother or, and so it was almost like a shaming of the woman who chose to do that while screaming women empowerment. And I remember getting personally getting really frustrated. It was like, how can you on one stance, one side stand here and scream that women should be equal and, but also shame the woman next to you who chose to stay home. Right. Because that's a hard choice and she works really hard too. Right. 
And she has the choice to make that choice. Right. Just as much as the woman who chose not to have kids and to take over the work, the works ways. Like there needs to be empowerment for every, every person in all of those spaces. And I think that's one of the hard things. And I don't think we're good for dads. And I don't think we're good for moms. Like we're not, we're not nice to moms or dads because we give all kinds of mixed messages. And no matter what way you're doing it, we're telling you it's wrong. Yeah, exactly. Like, you, know, you can't, like, if you've got a dad who's like, I want to be home with him and do it all. And then, oh, yeah. oh, what's wrong with him? Yeah. Right. Or, you know, or, oh, well, then the mom must not be involved at all. You're like, no, yeah. she, she goes to work and does, they, what? Right. Mm-hmm. Versus the families who mix, like, we judge every single way people have organized how to work their families. And there is no one right way to do it. The right way to do it is the one in which each person is feeling semi-satisfied with their lives. Because the reality is, you know, I have a lot of women in particular, but families who come in and say, are we supposed to have it all? Like, oh, didn't we get over this conversation? (laughs) No. No, we're not. We're not. We can't. That's not possible. You Mm -hmm. can't have the full-time career that you drive all the time and be a full-time active parent and be, you know, a partner and have a big hobby and have, that's, your, your pie of time isn't big enough for all of that. Yeah. And the reality of family life is it's dynamic, especially when they're little, like every six months, it's different. I every think day. <laughs> months or so, your kiddo needs something different and mm-hmm. you have to catch up and adjust to them. So maybe that's, you change your work schedule. You, you're like, oh, well now I, you know, I was working, you know, two, two 10 hour days and then was home the other days, but now I could work four, six hour days and have time on either side because they don't go to bed as early or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Like the beauty is to have that situation where you can flex it as much as you can, but man, we judge everyone. Yeah. Like it's true. Childcare kids who aren't in childcare, kids who went to preschool, kids who didn't go to preschool, kids who go to half day kindergarten, kids go to full day kindergarten, parents who are working full time, both parents are working, neither parents, like we're mean to everyone. I know. I feel like that should give us peace. Right? Like, you know, there's no winning. So just do what you want to do. Because yes. if you ask, I think I read this in a book. I can't, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but I believe it was in um, Untamed. And mm-hmm. I've been reading that recently. Yeah. I, I'm not going to quote it because I might butcher it, but it was essentially like everyone's she pulled, they pulled a bunch of people and you realize that nobody had the same answer. And then you, then you can be like, and I feel like for any parent, this should be really like, especially new parent who's really in it. And in postpartum, especially when you're dealing with all these things and all these potentially potential situations that you're going through, like nobody's answer is the same on how you should do this. So that should feel liberating and knowing that nobody's doing it right because there is no right. So just do it the way that works for you because that's right for you. And like, your child. And your, and your child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't need to pull. You don't need to pull everybody to get their input. You just need to pull yourself and your partner 
and figure out what's going to work for you guys. And with that, I would say, you know, there are a million parenting books out there and all the good ones have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Which is what? Which is um, show up, have a relationship with your child, treat them with kindness. You know, I say the sweet spot of parenting is warmth, kindness, empathy, and really clear limits. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's what all of them have in common, Mm -hmm. right? Warmth, kindness, empathy, and really clear limits. They'll tell you what the limits should be and, you know, how much screen time and how not screen time and when you should brush your teeth and what time they should go to bed and like all the things. The reality is you're the expert on your family. Yeah. If you take information in and then you decide what of that information makes sense for you, then mm-hmm. cobble together what makes sense for you. If yeah. everyone in your house is sleeping and eating and you're mostly enjoying each other, something's going right. It's true. <laughs> so, right? I mean, if you're mostly enjoying your kids, you're mostly enjoying your partner, everyone is sleeping and eating healthy food and and feeling satisfied with their lives, then you're you're, you're doing it. Yeah. Absolutely. And that can look all kinds of different ways. I mean, I tell people that come to see me, I'm like, I am a consultant. I'm going to give you ideas, but that doesn't mean I know what's right for your family. Yeah. I know things that generally work. I know a lot about kids and families. I know a lot about child development, you know, all those things, but that doesn't mean I have the answer for you. Mm -hmm. If something I say doesn't land for you or doesn't make sense to you, tell me. I don't want you walking away being like, well, she was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I didn't know. Like, if you don't tell me, like, oh, that really won't work for us because he never gets home from work before 7.30, so then he'd never see the kids. I'm like, oh, well, then let's talk about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're saying that because I feel like a lot of times going into, especially going to see someone who's a therapist can feel really intimidating. And I, I'm, I'm glad that this conversation has circled back to this. Cause I think going to a therapist as an, as a new mom, as a relationship, as a new parent, wh- whatever, all of these phases are so important. And going there sometimes is really intimidating because you're thinking I'm doing something wrong mm-hmm. and they're going to tell me how to do it right. Yeah. And and that feels terrible yeah. as a parent. It does. It feels terrible. No one wants to be told what they're doing wrong. Like even, even if you feel like there's room for improvement, like, I don't want you to tell me I'm doing it wrong because I'm working really hard at this. Mm-hmm. I'm trying, I'm trying my best. So yeah. hearing you say, it's okay to tell me, like I'm coming with ideas to help, to help not to give you the the playbook on how to be better mm-hmm. and you know, I think that's, that feels, that would feel good. I mean, it feels good hearing it, knowing like, it's okay to ask questions and tell your therapist that doesn't work for me. Here's why. What's another plan or what's another idea? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I've had people say that. And then I, I will sometimes say, well, let me explain to you why I think that is the best approach. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you tell me again, like, you know, because sometimes I'll challenge. I'll be like, well, I can understand you don't want to do it that way. Here's why I'm saying it. Can we talk that further? How could that work? How could we make that work? What's getting in the way? What would be a barrier to that? Right. Yeah. Um, But still, 
that person, no matter who they are, doctor, therapist, teacher, anyone, they're not the expert on you or your child. You are. Yeah. And so always speak up. You know, it's funny is I feel like I've had so many conversations with incredible women like yourself. And that is something that I feel like I've heard a few times from different, from the different moms that have been on here and share their story is, especially in that postpartum phase, there's, there's, there's a time that I feel like every parent gets to in all different places that are a woman, you know, wherever that, whatever that looks like in that moment, but it, where you're like, okay, I got this advice, but something inside me says that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I know better here. Yeah. But I feel like questioning it is going against everything I've told that this person's the expert. Mm. And so I should just hush that because they know better. They're the expert. So here's and- the thing. Every expert I've ever known that is a really good one is open to influence mm-hmm. and being curious and wanting to hear from the person in front of them. Otherwise, they're just being arrogant and stuck in their own belief system. And then that's not a very good helping professional. No. And it makes you feel belittled and insignificant in this space that you really are the expert a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that said, I've also had clients in my office who were so stuck in their own insecurity that they were saying things that I needed to challenge. And I would guarantee they walked out of my office feeling terrible. Yeah. Not necessarily because of what I said, but because of how they came in and I can't think of anyone in particular, but I'm thinking like, I'm sure someone has walked out of my office being like, she didn't hear me. Yeah. And so what I would want from those people as a professional is for someone to say, I don't think you're hearing me. Yeah. Worried that I'm not going to be heard. I'm worried that you're going to tell me I'm a bad parent. I'm worried that if I speak up that you're going to think I'm doing it wrong or I'm challenging you or I'm. And, you know, it, it's, it's hard to, it takes bravery to say those things, especially if you grow up in a family who said you didn't get to say those things. Yeah. You already feel insecure about your parenting. I think especially for parents who have kids who are different, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, those parents who are like, I've done all the things and my kids still won't sleep. Is there something wrong with me? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or. I've done all the things and I'm worried there's something wrong with my kid. You know, my kid's the extra picky eater. My kid's the one that cries more than anybody else. My kid hits at school more than anybody else. The school said my kid isn't supposed to bite this much. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with them? Um, They're scared that something's wrong and they've gone to their pediatrician and their pediatrician met them for 10 minutes and said their kid is fine. And they were Mm -hmm. walking out being like, no, they're not, there's something wrong. Yeah. And, but they didn't feel like they could stand up and say, I I want a second opinion. I don't think you're hearing me. Maybe I'm not explaining this well enough, but all my friends have kids the same age and my kid stands out. Yeah. Um, It's hard to say that. It is because 
for lots of reasons, it's hard to say that. It's hard to stand your own truth and speak up for yourself when you feel like this person that is supposed to be your expert isn't listening Mm -hmm. and doesn't have time. But it's also hard because then you're afraid the finger's going to get pointed back at you. I mean, in both in parenting and in postpartum as just a woman in general, it's like you don't want to go in and say how you're feeling. Honestly, this is why I love doing this and giving this voice to women is that somebody's listening who's like, oh, I'm so glad somebody else said that. Yeah. I feel better speaking my truth now because I know that I'm not the only one. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to say the hard thing when you feel like you're the only one saying it and you're afraid that somebody's going to cast judgment or tell you you're a bad, you're a bad mom or tell you that, oh, no other woman has felt that way after giving birth or no other, no other woman has felt that way. Or, you know, most kids don't do that. It must be you. Like, you know, you, you already map out in your head, all the terrible responses. So saying it out loud is scary. Or I think a lot of times, I think that's totally true. And then I think a lot of times pediatricians want to tell people that their kids are fine and they think parents want to hear. Right. Mm-hmm. So for me, my um, six-year-old stepdaughter has a language delay mm-hmm. and um, it's somewhat subtle and it's not necessarily something you'd pick up on if you didn't spend more time with her. And so we go for her six-year-old checkup and her pediatrician, I say, um, you know, we're concerned about a language delay. And she's like, oh, she sounds like a regular six-year-old to me. And I was like, so you saw her a year ago for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And now you're seeing her now for 10 minutes and you're going to tell me who spends every single day with her that she's yeah. a normal six-year-old. This is not right. Um, and I spoke up a couple times and said, actually, I don't, I don't think it is. Um, and she was like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. Mm-hmm. What's her kindergarten teacher say? I was like, well, she isn't really in kin- like it's COVID or yeah. She sees her on the screen. You're part of this year too, right? <laughs> you know, and the reason I'm sharing this is because I was in, I, what I wanted to say and I didn't say was, um, can I hand you my CV? Yeah, yeah. I'm a developmental disabilities specialist. I'm a child mm-hmm. specialist. People send people, People send kids to me sometimes to help figure out if they have a language delay, right? Yeah. Um, I didn't say any of those things. I was like, well, <laughs> she's already seeing a speech therapist, so we don't need to deal with this here, right? In my <laughs> own head, I was like, you're not the most important person, right? But yeah. I think even in those moments, right, I do this for a living and I tell people how to speak up and it's still hard to speak up and people yeah. still do this. And you get those moments of defensiveness where you're like, do you know who I am? Do yeah. you know, do I know these things? Right. And you have to check yourself and be like, how important is this? Like, where am I going to get my resources? But um, just to say, like, we all get in those moments. Mm-hmm. And so we get to remember we're the experts on our kids. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of, I want to talk a little bit about what you do. I I feel like there's a lot of people who would think, I don't know when I would go see you or see someone in your profession. Can you kind of share a little bit what it's an LCSW, which stands for a licensed clinical social worker. And you work with children and couples and like you're a therapist essentially 
Is yeah. that how you would explain yourself? Or I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm a therapist. I don't work with kids. I rarely Our... really work with kids. I work with their parents. Parents coaching. Sorry, you're right. Then that's right. No, I want to clarify because um, people often are like, "You see kids, right?" I'm like, "No, no, no." <laughs> Sometimes I meet kids, and I will go do observations in schools mm-hmm. to help see what's going on with kids, especially preschools. Um, I do a lot of observations in preschools or used to before. Yeah. You know, um, Cause they're like, Oh, my kid's having a hard time or a preschool will have me come in and be like, you know, so-and-so is having a hard time in the classroom. Can you help us sort that out? Um, so I'll do that. And then I see individuals of all ages um, from, you know, early twenties up into, you know, as old as you want to come see me. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, people in their eighties and then um, everybody in between, I see couples, I do couples work. And I see mm-hmm. a lot of parents for parenting, um, yeah. which is, you know, family work and, and, and parenting stuff, but then parenting stuff often leads to individual stuff, which often leads to couples stuff. Um, yeah. It's full circle really. <laughs> and then I also do a lot of work helping people recover from relationships with people with personality disorders. Hmm. And then I also a parent coordinator, which is a person assigned or appointed by the court to um, uh, couples in high conflict, divorce or custody situations. Oh, wow. You wear a lot of hats. I wear a lot of hats. It's pretty cool. <laughs> is there, it is really cool. I, I feel like you have a lot to offer in e- working with individuals with all that background and with your own, your own postpartum experience and your own parenting experience. I feel like that really lends a lot of, input and ability to like like you said before empathize with with people and wherever they are yeah yeah it's um yeah I I feel pretty grateful to you know one of the things I get to do is each time I get interested in something I get to say "Ooh, I'm gonna do that now right (laughs) um you know, oh, I want to, you know, um, I want to learn more about this and learn how to do that. I want to learn how to do these other things. But I think if someone is saying like, um, you know, why would they come see me? It would be because they want more out of the life they're living. Yeah. That's it. That's... Right. Whatever. And there's not, and there's not a time frame or there's not like a, you know, like, oh, this is, you know, especially for, I feel like for parents and for our listener, for my listener base is a lot of new, a lot of moms in all different phases, honestly. Um, but there's not, I, it's, I feel like it's nice to hear that there's not like, okay, well, you know, you should wait, you can go right away and, and have input and have somebody help you and hold your hand through this process. Cause it's, it's not easy being a, no. a new parent or going through that postpartum or going through all these phases. It's not easy. And having somebody hold your hand is so much easier. Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, it's just, um, you know, I, I, I tell people, you know, I'm a professional problem solver. I'm a listener <laughs> and I pull from all different um, frameworks right? You know, family systems theory, interpersonal neurobiology, Buddhism. Um, you know, I work with people of all different faiths and, and, and religions and spaces. And, um, you know, I really appreciate um, a, a whole range of people walking through my door or my video screen. Um, yeah. <laughs> because then, um, well, I get to learn, right? I, I learn yeah. what I work with. 
on understanding people better. And I just value hearing people's stories and helping them sort through um, really how to, how to get more out of the life they're living, how to live a more satisfying life in whatever situation they're in. And I fully believe the vast majority of people with some better understanding of themselves and exploration of themselves can live a more satisfying life in the life they're living. Mm-hmm. Oh, Tracy, I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and all of, I mean, both, this is something I wanted to say earlier, but I really appreciate you sharing your postpartum story with your biological child, but also for bringing light to the fact that as an adoptive mom as well, you go through postpartum. And I feel like, and we mentioned this before, but that, that story isn't told as often. And I don't, I also don't think it's recognized as postpartum, but it is, it is in a very different way. And I'm just so grateful that you came on and shared that story and shared both of your stories and your, your passion for your profession. And honestly, all of the incredible resources and knowledge you shared, I'm really grateful for you sharing that because some, somebody needs to hear that. And, and and said, your story is just really beautiful. Oh, well, thank you. And, and thank you for giving me a place to tell it. It's, um, it's kind of lovely to go back through and tell it from, it from- is over here. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel it's funny. Cause I, I've said this before on the podcast, but it's, it, it breaks my heart, but also makes me so happy that women are sharing this, but, but it, most women don't share their postpartum story. And, and I've heard this from a lot of women now, and I'm just so grateful every time it's, it's said, but I've had women thank say thank you for like giving me a place to share it and honestly I don't know why anyone thanks me because it's so vulnerable to share this hard this hard time in your life and I'm just so grateful that that I have a platform to give women the voice because it's just it's a really powerful story and you know we're not we didn't just start having kids and (laughs) postpartum is not new so you know sharing these stories is just really it just brings me a lot of joy well, wonderful. Well, thank you for just being lovely to chat with. This was just yeah. a conversation and um, for giving me a place to talk about stuff that I'm, I'm so excited about and passionate about. Um, thank you. Thank you. So before you go, yeah. can you please, I have two questions for yeah. you. What is your favorite mom hack? I almost let you leave without answering Ooh. that. <laughs> uh, oh man. You know, I, I think one of the things that keeps us the most organized is having a dump zone for each person when you walk in the door. So I have cubbies for each person. And mm-hmm. uh, if I find stuff that's yours around the house, it goes in that cubby. So if you're wondering where your stuff is, that's where it is. Um, and like each that. person has one. So it's just a, a bin as you walk in the door and it's not pretty, um, it's organized, <laughs> but you know, the bins are overflowing to some degree, but at least that's where everything can go. Yeah. So it's then, not sitting in your living room or sitting in your kitchen or. And if I get irritated, I don't have to take it to everybody's room. I can just be like, here, dump zone, right? And then when they walk in the door, they have a place to dump their stuff. I have a place to dump my stuff. My partner has a place to dump his stuff. I think that's one of the things that keeps my me sane around the house is a dump zone for each individual person when you walk in the door. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I think I'm going to be taking that because as we were talking, my four-year-old is old enough and very, 
and very good at moving her own stuff because she brings it downstairs. I know she can bring it back upstairs. (laughs) And what I do is um, on the weekends, you take your your bin and go empty it out and bring it back. I like that. That's good. I'll be taking that. I've learned so many great mom hacks by asking this (laughs) question. I've got all the good mom hacks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So my last question for you is how can our listeners find you? Yeah, the easiest way to find me is tracybeebel.com. So that's T-R-A-C-E-Y-B-I-E-B-E-L.com. Perfect. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I will be sharing your information and I will say on your website, you have a little side list of all these amazing, it's almost like a blog. And some of the tips that you have on there, you have one about potty training. And I was like, that is gold. Why didn't I think about that? (laughs) So you have so many great resources just on your website for anyone who's looking and needing some good parenting tips or good resources or I'm, I'll definitely be sharing your, your website because it's such a great website and easy to navigate. Oh, that's nice to hear. Good feedback. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Tracy. Okay, good night. Thank you so much for listening. I am so grateful and humbled that you would take the time to tune in. Please continue to join me as I work to change the stigma around postpartum and help to build a community where women can feel supported, loved, and empowered. If you'd like to connect with me, follow me on Instagram at So You Had a Baby Podcast, or you can check out the website at www.soyouhadababypod.com. And if you want to hear more and be part of this amazing community of mamas, be sure to subscribe and share the podcast.